Hi, I'm Dr. Raj Sundar, a family physician and a community organizer. You're listening to Healthcare for Humans, the show dedicated to educating you on how to care for culturally diverse communities so you can be a better healer. This is about everything that you wish you knew to really care for the person in front of you, not just a body system. Let's learn together. Welcome back, everyone. This episode is a bit different. Let me tell you how I got here. When I think about what can make healthcare more human, I usually start by reflecting on my own clinical experiences. Something makes me wonder. Then I can't stop thinking about it. Then I let my curiosity take over, leading me where it wants. So for this episode, this is how it started. I was caring for a Nepalese patient during her pregnancy. As a primary care physician, my MO is building relationships, even if it's often with those very brief 20-minute spans over several years, right? Usually that's how long it takes. But pregnancy, it's different. I get to build something quicker and deeper over the span of nine months. It's a journey that's more intense, ending with the delivery that I'm usually present for and ends in me caring for their children over those taxing, intense, and ineffable feeling of the first few moments and weeks with your baby. In this case, This patient of mine, she had come to the U.S. as a refugee, carrying with her a life story that left me in awe. I won't share too much of her story, but she didn't have much access to healthcare back in Nepal, and she carried that trauma to the U.S. It affected what she thought healthcare would be like, what she expected out of it, and how she interacted with it. This matters to all of you who care for people from different countries. They have their experiences in their own countries. That's going to color how they experience healthcare wherever you are. That got me thinking, how can we support communities both here in the U.S. and in other countries like Nepal? That question led me to outreach and research until it took me into a world I never expected to enter. I ended up connecting with a remarkable surgeon in Nepal. Yes, Nepal, if you believe it whose story shines a light on what it means to help others care for their own people and what it means to support those communities. Dr. Shankar Rai, an expert at repairing clefts and burn injuries, is who I'm talking about. He works with an organization called Research, a nonprofit humanitarian aid organization committed to providing reconstructive surgical care in developing countries worldwide. For his work, the American Medical Association honored him with its Nathan Davis Award in International Medicine And His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, honored him with this Unsug Heroes of Compassion Award. So, what all has he done? Here's an example. In 1999, way before people were thinking about this, Shankar established the first research surgical outreach program. And today, more than 90% of all research surgeries are performed by developing world surgeons like him. He even created the first medical residency program in Nepal's history, for plastic reconstructive surgery. And that's not all. Shankar's journey is a testament to persistence, to overcoming systemic barriers, and to relying on support from serendipitous friends along the way. You'll hear about that. It's a story about hiring for attitude and then training for skill because, you see, and you know, surgery can be taught, but compassion is trickier, especially if the gap between the lived experience of you and the patient is vast. Finally, it's a story about an organization, 
research that's not about being saviors by sending surgeons for one-off trips. We know that can be helpful, but it's actually about training surgeons in their own countries. As Shankar puts it, it's not just about giving someone a fish or about teaching them how to fish. It's providing them with the fishing rod, helping them create fisheries and ensuring they'll be successful moving forward. Now, what does that look like? Here's Shankar Rai. Welcome to the show, Shankar. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I wanted to first start out by talking about your story, which I do with all guests. What led you to be where you are right now? Specifically, I went to medicine because of my father, actually. He wanted me to go to medicine. I wanted to become an engineer, but he said, no, you should go to medicine. So I went to medicine. Before recursive surgery, I was a health assistant, similar to your physician assistant in the U.S. It's a three-year program after 10 years of schooling. It's more like a pre-medical course. And after that, I went to a very remote district in a health post. It was a real remote place where I was the only person to take care of any health matters for a radius of a day's walk. And there I had some medicines which I could dispense, but there was nothing I could do surgically other than sewing up some lacerations and maybe fix simple fractures because I used to have some plaster material so I could treat some simple fractures. Medically, I, I could keep some medicines, so I was happy. People used to come with bronchial asthma or peptic ulcer problems, and I had some medicines, basic medicines I could dispense. So I always thought that to become a very useful doctor, I had to become a surgeon. So then after 18 months, I came to Kathmandu again to join the medical school to do my undergraduate degree. And right from the beginning, I was very interested in surgery. There was no surgical program, no no postgraduate programs in the country. Even for general surgery, there was no program in Nepal. So I had to go to Bangladesh. And luckily, I passed everything in time. So I came back as a general surgeon. When I came back to Nepal, there were several general surgeons. A few urologists, but there was only one neurosurgeon for the whole country of Nepal, and there was no cardiac surgeon. I'm talking about 1991, 92. And at that time, there were many Japanese surgeons working in the hospital where I used to work. And then I wondered, what are they doing? Who are these people? So I entered into the room, and then I saw a child with cleft lip on the table and then the surgeon was marking. The child was already anesthetized and uh, he was marking. So I could see the whole thing in the beginning. And uh, I had time, so I stayed there behind the surgeon. The surgeon was seated on a, on a stool and uh, so he started operating and then it took him maybe 45 minutes or so to finish the surgery. And at the end of the surgery, I could not believe my eyes. The child's face looked perfectly normal, as if there was no cleft. Uh, that really caught my imagination. I said, this is what I want to learn. This is what I want to do. So I introduced myself to the surgeon, and I told, I asked him whether he'd be kind enough to teach me how to do this kind of surgery. I told him that I'm a general surgeon. I, I do not know anything about this kind of surgery. Would you be interested in teaching me? Then he said, oh, sure. We're looking for somebody local 
would learn these things from us and then provide this service in the country on a regular basis. So that's how I got introduced to plastic surgery. I love that you detailed your impressive story in 10 minutes with vivid moments. I can really picture it. You in that OR looking at the cleft palate, cleft lip, and then deciding this is how you're going to commit your life to changing how things are working in Nepal. And I want to focus on two parts of this. One is yourself and getting trained up. I have a few questions about that. And then second is patient experiences. So let's start with your experience, because what I also heard from that story was mentors, people who are kind to you when you kept showing up and decided, I'm going to educate somebody who's eager to learn. And then two, you coming to the U.S. and studying here to build up your skills. What did that support look like? So ultimately, you could become the surgeon you wanted. Because a lot of people take that step and then they're not able to become a surgeon because their systems are hard and complex to navigate. The surgeon who facilitated the process of going to the U.S. was not from research, actually. This was a surgeon, a hand surgeon working in Dallas, Southwestern Medical Center. So the plastic surgeon from Dallas was visiting the king here. And so he met the king and then he came to know that there was no plastic surgeon in the whole country. This surgeon didn't know me at all, okay? So he went to the king and he told the king that, oh, it's it's surprising that you do not have a plastic surgeon in the whole country of Nepal. So I want to help you by training one in the U.S. And then I was selected by him and I said, would you like to go to U.S. to become a plastic surgeon? That's what he asked me. That was the second question he asked me. There was no chance of me doing plastic surgery, even though I was learning from the visiting teams. So he went back to the U.S. and he told me that if you want to just visit for a few months and observe, then you didn't have to do the USMLE. But if you want to get hands-on training for a long duration of time, like a year or two, then you have to do USMLE. Then I said, I would certainly like hands-on training, obviously, because the only training I was getting in Nepal was two weeks every six months. I will take the challenge because I was already a general surgeon then, but I had to take the USMLE, which was not easy. At that time, um, there were two steps, step one and step two. Each step would cost, I think, $1,000 a fee. And then there was no examination center in Nepal, not in India. The nearest was in, in Bangkok. So I had to go to Bangkok also. Now, I was a general surgeon. I didn't have any money to pay $1,000 for one step, $2,000. No way. That would be my almost a year salary. <laughs> so there was no way I could wow, pay that yeah. much of in a fee. And then on top of that, I had to go to Bangkok twice. Right? So uh, there was no way I could do that. But a friend of mine from Seattle, who is a professor at uh, the University of Washington in the public health division, the department, he was somebody who was a good friend of mine for quite some time at that time. So I told him that I'm trying to get into this, but I didn't have the money. So he said, no, don't worry, I'll pay for you. So he paid for my fees, two steps. And then he also gave me money to go to Bangkok. And then once I finished, again, I didn't have the money to go to U.S. I had to buy the air tickets. And after several years, when I started making some money, I told him, I'm going to give the money back to you. 
but you would not accept it. Then the only way to pay him back was helping others, how he helped me. So I have helped several people afterwards, almost doing the same thing. I paid for the US family fees and paid for the airfare for a few of my colleagues. So I, I helped them financially to cover their expenses. In a sense, I feel that I'm, I paid him back. Yeah, one of the main barriers for anybody getting into the profession, especially if you're international, is money and resources. I think you gave such an example of how people can help each other and pay it forward, or we make it easier with systems, not making USMLE so expensive because that company makes a lot of money giving tests, finding ways to make it more accessible. That's another conversation to have too. The other thing that I wanted to bring up was you came back to Nepal because a lot of people come to the U.S. and stay. What made you say after you finished the fellowship in the U.S.? I'm not going to try to stay in the U.S. and practice my craft here. I'm going to go back to Nepal. It never occurred to me to stay in the U.S. right from the beginning. It never occurred to me that I would stay there. In fact, you'll be surprised when I was being interviewed for the visa at the American embassy here first time. The person was asking me, oh, so you want to go to U.S. for plastic surgery? And then he was asking, so you you claim that you are going to come back to Nepal? So are you sure you are going coming back? And I told him, that's the only reason I'm going to, going to go there. If I cannot come back, there is no reason why I have to go there. He was surprised. The person was interviewing me was surprised. And then he suddenly asked me, do you know how much money a plastic surgeon makes in the U.S.? I said, no, I do not know. And then I don't have to know because I'm not going to stay there. So I don't have to know. He laughed. But anyway, he gave the visa. (laughs) What a funny story. It says a lot about you. I'll tell you another story. After one year in Dallas, I came back to Nepal because I had this position of assistant professor in the university. So I wanted to maintain that. I had to work in Nepal. I had already gotten the position of fellow in Cleveland Clinic before I finished my, my one year in Dallas. But I wanted to come here and work for one year so that I would get that position. So I came back and then to go back to the U.S., I had to get the visa from the ECFMG. For all the foreign graduates, the ECFMG has to issue a paper for the visa. So to get that paper from the ECFMG office, I had to submit a paper, a letter from the ministry that the specialty of plastic surgery is useful for Nepal, and then I'm going to come back to Nepal. Those were the two sentences that had to be mentioned in the letter um, from the ministry to the ECFMG office. So I went back to the ministry. First time when I went there, I had somebody in the ministry, so they wrote me that letter. So I submitted that. I got the visa. I went there. Second time when I was planning to go back, then I had to get the letter again from the ministry. Then the government was totally different and they would not give me that letter. Well, how do we know that you are going to come back? We know the specialty of plastic is needed for Nepal, but how do we know that you are going to come back? And then I told them, I was there for one year. I came back. So, you know, I will come back again. Then they said, oh, no, you came back. We know, but you may not come back next time. So how do we know that you are going to come? So they took uh, two months. And then even after two months, they were not giving me any letter. Then the time was kind of passing by and I was scared what's going to happen. So I never get back there. Uh, that was my fear. So I started thinking, I have to find a solution for this. 
So I started thinking, ECFMG office in Philadelphia would get thousands of those letters, right? From hundreds of countries. How would the person in Philadelphia know that the person who is supposed to write that letter should be this and this? So I started thinking, okay, if he doesn't give me that letter, then maybe I can use the same letterhead, but from somebody who is heading some other department. So I found a friend of mine who was, I think, a head of tuberculosis or something in the same ministry, but he's not the authority to issue that letter, okay? So I went to him and then I asked, this is the kind of letter I need. This is specialty of plastic surgery. is very useful for Nepal. And this Dr. Shankar Mandra is going to come back to Nepal after he finishes his training. Can you write this in the ministry letterhead? He said, sure, I will write it now, sign. So he wrote me that letter and then I sent to the ECFMG. ECFMG obviously would not know who was supposed to write that letter from the ministry. So I got the visa second time. So I came back. So you got the fellowship, you came back. And I want to look at this transition point. When you were training, what parts of the education was missing to treat your community? I went to this program in Kathmandu, the new medical school, which had a philosophy of training the paramedics to become doctors, okay? I was a health assistant, so the health assistants and nurses were trained to become doctors, to go to medical school. So it was a new philosophy. And in the curriculum, there was a heavy dose of public health, community health. Almost 60% of our curriculum was to do with the community. We had to go to community, do our own research. During our medical school, we spent months together out in the remote areas, in the remote villages. So I, I think that gave me a perspective of what is the need of healthcare in the remote areas in Nepal. So I think that shaped my mind in organizing the care for the rural people, poor people. I think that had a profound influence in my thinking, number one. Number two, the training itself in the general surgery training in India and partly in Nepal, it was mostly hands-on training. Obviously, it was not technically very sophisticated. For example, the laparoscopic surgery was not there when I was there. It was just coming in. High-tech thing was not there. But now my son also is now finishing his plastic surgery. He did his general surgery in China. And then he was telling me that most of the internal abdominal surgeries were laparoscopic surgery. So time had changed. But the training was good enough in the sense that we had all the opportunity to interact with the patients more in the sense that they were coming from the remote areas and then being a person from remote area, I could understand their needs. And then also because of the background of a health assistant working in the remote areas, I would understand their difficulties coming to Kathmandu, to the capital, and then undergoing those medical treatment. I could understand that. So I always thought that I understood their needs uh, uh, even outside the medical issues. For example, that food habits, the way they would be having difficulty in the big towns, their difficulties managing money to undergo surgeries, things like that. I used to understand those things much clearer. So that helped me also. And then I had a very profound interaction with an anatomy professor. And that I should tell you that story. And that has guided me. So this professor was very senior by age. He was like 
1982 when I was in medical school and he was teaching us anatomy. So he was teaching us anatomy and then I was always interested in the history also. So I asked him, sir, when you came out of the medical school, what was your responsibility as a doctor? What kind of diseases did you treat and how did you treat them? I asked him and then he had to think a little bit and then he said, oh, yes. Uh, he's talking about 1940s. So he said, oh, yes, at that time, there were a lot of patients with tuberculosis. And I remember a big corridor, you know, big hall full of tuberculosis patients. And at that time, there was no anti-tubercular drug. What we were treating them was by giving injection of the boiled cow milk. So every day, his duty was to give a small dose interdermally into the skin. That was the trick. Then I started thinking, okay, in his lifetime, I'm listening to this story firsthand, right? He was telling me his own experience treating tuberculosis patients with milk. By the time he was telling me that story, we knew the regimen. Okay, we have to give streptomycin for so many months and isodizat and rifampicin and it's like that. Look how much had changed. Do you understand what I mean? In his lifetime, he could see so yeah. much change. In our lifetime, we have seen so many changes. Then I realized that the treatment that we provide today, our people, our younger generation, after 20 years, they're going to laugh at us. So I think it doesn't matter what kind of treatment we do, probably, in a big picture, how we treat our patients, how we interact with them, how we develop our human relationship with them. I think that's more important. Same thing with the historical nurse, Florence Nightingale. Imagine what kind of nursing care was there at that time, and then how many nurses have been there after her time and today, but we don't remember any nurse, we remember Florence Nightingale. Not because she practiced nursing at a very high level, but because she was humane. And then we remember her even today. No, that's so good because part of what I hope to do with this podcast is remind people the importance of humanity in medicine. And as I think what I'm hearing from you and noting is just that the actual science of medicine changes, as you said, from boiled milk to yes. our four or six hour therapy, right? For therapy for tuberculosis but the humanity part of it and the connections we make don't change and doing that in a caring way is important and you started out talking about how because you were from rural nepal you understood what people are feeling going to the big cities and how they were worried about their money and how it was overwhelming so it helps to have people from diverse areas like from rural nepal to care for people in that way and when you're in leadership meetings, when you're creating organizations, I think you probably think about that. Okay, let's transition to research. Because you created a model and then decided to partner with research for other countries. I think this is part of your boldness. It was a very small process. I didn't have the whole picture in the beginning. Things evolved slowly over the time. 
for example, when we started getting the help from researchers to provide that service after the training, many times people think that, okay, you train somebody and then they will start providing the care. It's not true. I always give this analogy of teaching somebody how to fish. You teach somebody how to fish, but if the person who wants to fish doesn't have a fishing rod, they are not going to fish. So you have to provide them a fishing rod. I like that analogy a lot better because I think people just get stuck in the first type of the analogy, whereas don't give a fish, teach somebody how to fish. And then as you said, but what if they don't have a fishing rod? Just teaching them how to fish doesn't mean that they are great fish, right? So well, research is an organization that provided me the fishing rod as well, which means that for providing the care, you need, you need funding. You have to travel, you have to buy medications, you have to buy sutures, you have to pay the anesthesiologist, you have to pay the hospital. There are a lot of things involved, right? So I was lucky that research connected me to Smile Train, who provided the funding for carrying out cleft surgeries. And then research also provided me the funding to do a burn reconstruction. Post-burn research also provided me the funding to train a new generation of plastic surgeons. The analogy is after you teach somebody how to fish, you give them the rod, then that's not enough. You start teaching them how to develop fisheries. So that's how research helped me, not just by providing the training, but also providing the support to develop this program. So it's not that I suddenly thought that right from the beginning, I had all the plans. It's not like that. One thing led to another slowly over the time. But we came to the stage later on that we needed to train our own surgeons in an academic environment. So later on, we had to develop plastic surgery residency. So there was no curriculum in the university. So I had to write the curriculum by myself. So I consulted the curriculum from the American college and the Australian and also from the British system. What did they learn in during plastic surgery residency? Amazing. Blog for research, for supporting you, spread this important work around the world. Well, as you're creating these trainings, going back to the caring and humanity part of what you're talking about, part of the curriculum is the science and the procedure and the skills. How do you also train people to be more caring? Because I think there's an image of surgeons being very proceduralist, right? I think that's the most difficult part of teaching, I think. That is something that you cannot so easily teach people. The person has to be of the mindset or experience in the past. It's not like teaching them how to perform a surgery. It's totally different. You can only teach those things by example, showing them how you do that. And if you don't practice that, and if you're just trying to teach others, that doesn't work. Surgery is totally different because surgery is, People will learn whatever they need to do, right? That there is a need for them to learn that. But there's compassion, for example. It's difficult to teach somebody those things. But most people, uh, they learn those things. But techniques, surgical technician, they will learn. They will watch video. They will read books. They'll go to another teacher. They'll watch surgeries. And they will learn those things because they need that. But the human part of the medicine is very difficult to teach, I think. Certain people are always looking for those opportunities to, to learn those things, either from books or stories or examples. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. 
modeling is important. I think you showing that care when you're teaching and if they're rounding with you. Rosen has to have the, the right mindset to see that the analogy is a good person will always find a good person. They'll sense, oh, this is a good person. And it's difficult for people who don't have the right mindset to learn those things. I agree. Okay, Shankar, thanks for being with any final thoughts or words for the audience that's going to be listening to this? Yeah, I, I have always taken research as an open university. It's a university in the sense that it has immense resources to learn from, to get the help from. I'm lucky that I have been able to get all the support I needed from them. And now, obviously, there are many other organizations who are coming here and helping us. But I learned fishing from research. If I had not learned fishing, then obviously I would not be having a pond to, to have the fishery today. So I think, again, having an organization like research behind you makes a lot of difference. For example, now we are getting people through research from many different countries. For example, we had a surgeon from Mali who learned how to do cleft surgeries and burn reconstruction. He went back and then he started doing them in his own country. Similarly, we had a surgeon from Bhutan to undergo training with us, and he's going to be the first plastic surgeon for the whole country of Bhutan. We had a, a surgeon from Mozambique who is going to be the fourth plastic surgeon of the whole country of Mozambique with 30 million people, and that's the same population of Nepal. So what I'm trying to say is that because of the help from research, we are trying to help researchers to multiply the effect to other countries. So our team learned from many international teams and then now we're trying to share that with other colleagues from the global south. I hope people will understand my Nepali English. Oh yeah, it's incredibly clear. And I think this is such an important story to hear. And the work that you're doing is important for Thank people you. to know, not only if the possibility, if you are able to persist during those challenges and wait for those lucky moments, but with organizations like Research being that multiplier, hopefully we can give more people those opportunities. Because as you said, in the global South, whatever you want to call, there are entire countries with just one surgeon or maybe none. And it's important work to spread because a surgery like cleft flip can truly be life-changing. We know that, right? So I think it's very important. So thank you, Shankar. Yes, thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks again, everyone, for joining me on another episode of Healthcare for Humans. If you liked this episode, as always, my ask to you is please share it with one other person and go to healthcareforhumans.org to sign up to be part of the community. And lastly, thank you to Tessa Chu and Maharazaki for supporting this podcast, making sure it's the best it can be and helping with the creation and the production of all parts of this podcast. Thanks again. I'll see you next time.